Professor Mark here, super excited. Special episode of Real Men this week. It's our first ever Real Men Conference. And so the way it started, uh, Trinity Church in Scottsdale where I pastor, we started with, I don't know, maybe a dozen guys around the table. A few years later, it is a completely packed room to capacity every single week. Men of all ages, life stages, incomes, races, and backgrounds. And the big idea is this, we build men up to bless women and children. We live in a world that beats men down, wants to castrate and cancel them, and what they really need is Christ. And that's why we're here. And so we had an experiment recently where we did our first, uh, what we would call a bigger event, and it was a packed house. We're gonna share that sermon and some of that event with you. Uh, it includes an interview uh, with my longtime friend, Matt Lindland, UFC fighter, Olympic silver medalist, Olympic coach, and uh, in the interview, of course he had a dip in. I did not know that. Um, whether or not he spit where I preach, you can just watch and see for yourself. Uh, we baptized some brand new Christians. It was a really, really great time. And I just want to say personally, it means the world to me for the churches that are showing the real men uh, sermons all around the country and world, and also the upwards of 100,000 men a week that are joining us late on Wednesday night for a long sermon on how to be a man. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Our world is so jacked up. Uh, it's time to, uh, to just sort of push back a little bit and say, we actually do know what a man is and we do know what a man is supposed to do because we have Jesus as the example. All right, you guys welcome my friend, Matt. Mark, thanks for having me. So good to have you. So thanks for joining us. Uh, we've been friends for maybe 20 years. Exactly. Known you a long time, and uh, I'll tell you this, you meet a lot of people that are athletes or politicians or celebrities, and you get to know them. They're not really committed fully and firstly to Jesus. You are. You are a man of God, and so it's an honor to have you. And I wanted to ask you a little bit, just kind of your testimony, where you became a Christian, kind of your walk with God, and uh, maybe what God's doing in your life right now. All right. I, I grew up in a pretty rural setting, lived next to my great-grandparents, then my grandparents moved next door. Um, my, my, my grandparents were believers, but they didn't, they didn't really share it with me, and my great-grandparents. So I never, I never really understood the, the gospel. I never really understood Jesus. And uh, I went to a, a, just a Bible camp and going into my freshman year, the summer before my freshman year, and and I was like, yes, I want the Lord, I want Jesus, but uh, went through high school and wasn't walking with the Lord, just was, didn't get plugged in. And, and when, you, when you accept Jesus, I mean, that's the one thing I would say is you got to get plugged into a church. You got to get plugged into men that will pour into you and guide you and, and just continue to lift you up. I didn't have that. I was hanging around nutty high school kids and making all kinds of poor choices and decisions. But uh, I, met a, I met a young lady when I was a sophomore in high school and uh, I walked in the gym and to watch one of my friends compete and and I met her and I was just, I, I just kept following her up. She, you know, it was like everywhere, every weekend, I'd run into her for some reason. <laughs> she thought I was stalking her. Yeah, that, yeah. Which I was. <laughs> but, um, and, and then I, I went to a junior college and uh, wrestled there for a junior college. I got recruited to University of Nebraska. And uh, Angie was, was uh, a little nervous that I was going off to college. And uh, the, day that, the day that I had a ring in my pocket ready to propose to her, she broke up with me. 
she said, uh, well, you're leaving for school and uh, I guess this is over. And I was like, well, I had planned to do this a little differently, but I guess you don't want this. And, and it was an engagement ring. And she was like, yeah, I do. And I was like, okay, well, we're leaving in three weeks. I showed up with my CJ5 and uh, she didn't have anything packed. And I was, she's like, I'll meet you there. I was like, no, not a chance. You're going to meet me there. And I just started grabbing boxes and throwing stuff in it, loaded up the U-Haul. Her mom pulls up and she's like, where are you going? My wife's like, uh, Nebraska, I think. And I'm like, no, we're, we're going to Lincoln, Lincoln, Nebraska. She got out halfway in the trip in Wyoming. She's walk, she starts walking back, back to Oregon. She thought she was heading east. I let her keep going. <laughs> I let her keep going for about 10 minutes to cool off. She's like, you were going to let me walk all the way home? I was like, well, you're heading the right direction. So I just want you to hop in. And we, get, we got out there and, um, you know, and, and I still, I mean, I, I had Jesus and, and I accepted the Lord, but I hadn't been walking with him. But he was, he was giving me blessings right there. It was like, I'm giving you blessings. And we got to Lincoln and we're living together. And, and I was like, I know, I know that this isn't working. Like, we got to go get married next week. I, I set an appointment for us Tuesday to go down to the courthouse. I pick her up. Right, that's she, romantic, bro. I just want to honor you for that. I just want to, I mean, that's, she's, every little girl, that's the dream. Like, she's Tuesday, balling. Tuesday at the courthouse. She's yeah. balling. And she's like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And Wait a second, do you have a dip in? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So it, it's a snooze. <laughs> And so, as we're, <laughs> way to call me out. Dude, th this is where I preach, man. Yeah, I mean, okay. don't spit, don't spit. Nah, nah, I wouldn't dream of it. And uh, we, we end up getting married in, and, uh, at the courthouse. <laughs> Real romantic, I understand. And uh, I, I was like, we're still, this isn't working. And uh, I, I know what it is. I, I need to get her pregnant. We need to have kids. <laughs> And, and, and then the Lord kept talking to me. He said, no, you need to get your family to church. You need to be a leader. Um, you need to get baptized, and you need to follow me. And uh, that's what I've been doing for the rest of my life and raised two children. Um, both of them are successful doing just wonderful things. My son's back working for me. I, I spent the last nine years uh, coaching the United States Olympic team for the wrestling program. Uh, well, thank you. Got out of that environment, moved back to my hometown in, in, uh, in Oregon and uh, just serving the community, uh, leading kids in martial arts and, and young adults and men. And I'm just, I'm just training athletes and training men. And I've, I've been doing that since I, was, since I graduated from, from college. My first job was coaching Chael Sonnen in his high school and I coached him to UFC titles and uh, lots of championships, lots of other athletes. Um, but I, I've really uh, just, it's, it's really only about Jesus for me and about my family and just bringing us together. How long have you been married now? I've been, I'm going on 32 years in October. Congratulations. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. And uh, maybe tell us a little bit, athletic career, just a little bit of that kind of, I mean, you were wrestler and then kind of, you know, well, mixed you, martial arts you, came you into You guys are going to kind of laugh when I tell you. My, my first sport, I was an equestrian athlete. And my parents told me, we're too poor for you to do that sport. Find something else. So I got to high school, and, and they had gym class, and they had a wrestling uh, section. And they were like, hey, you're really good. You should go out for the team. They were lying. They were absolutely lying to me. But I ended up going out for the team because 
growing up, I was riding horses and, and I was a little fella and I was, a, I rode ponies. So you think I got picked on? So I needed to learn how to fight. And, uh, and so that's what brought me into the sport of wrestling. And uh, right after the high school season, I went to this tournament, freestyle and Greco-Roman, the two international styles that are competing in the Olympic Games. And uh, I don't know how I did it, but I went 0-8 that whole weekend. And I wrestled cadets, and I wrestled juniors, I wrestled two different age groups, both styles, both disciplines, didn't win a single match. And um, so what did I do? I, I ended up going to those clubs and the, the guys were on the podium I was like I need to find one of those gems to go to and I ended up going there and my coach was a believer and uh, one thing he always he always told us was we were endowed with the seeds of greatness and we were created in God's image and that was the one thing that Mark Sprague my coach just kept continuing to pour into me and that's the message I share with my athletes all the time is they they were created in God's image and they were endowed with the seeds of greatness and they can do anything that they want to do through Jesus. Was he kind of like a father figure to you? How old was he? Was he old enough? Mark's to the same age as my father. Okay. He's, he's 82 years old. So, And I'm doing a camp with him May 5th and 6th. We're working together. And he's really excited, and I'm excited to get to work with him. How much did that mean to you at that time as a young man to have a guy who was like a father figure and was pulling you up, investing in you, encouraging you? It means everything. It means everything to, to have people like that. And I've been very blessed because I, I, like I said, I grew up next to my great grandfather. I grew up, my grandfather and I were best friends, but I lost my grandfather and my mother and my great grandfather all about the same time. Like if my great grandfather passed, he was old, you know, and then my grandfather who was pretty young. And then my mom was only 47, all within a year of each other. And uh, I mean, I just had a young family and I was living out of state, uh, coaching the university of Nebraska and uh, it just it just crushed me um, to to lose. I mean, my mom and I were really close. I mean, my father and I are really close, and he's come to the Lord, and he's got to know Jesus, and uh, he's a faithful believer now. And he got remarried, and he's got a companion. So we're. I'm just really happy for him. I'm happy he came to the Lord. How old was your dad roughly when he became a Christian? Oh, he was probably in his sixties. So what about those guys here that their dad doesn't know the Lord yet? Any encouragement for them? I, I think there is a lot of encouragement for them. I, I think it's just, it's through, it's through your actions that you show. It's through the fruit. It's, you know, and I, I mean, it's just, you have to produce fruit. You, you have to be filled with the Spirit to produce fruit. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, happened in 2020 when, when USA Wrestling and the Olympic Committee and everybody shut down was they were, they were just paralyzed by the spirit of fear. And I was told, send your athletes home. You can't train them. Go work from home. And I'm like, how do I coach on Zoom? Like this? It's, it's hard to wrestle on Zoom. Yeah, it is really hard to wrestle on Zoom. <laughs> and, and just every night I was just praying that the Lord would just fill me with the spirit. And, and I was just blessed to be out in the middle of nowhere, out on the Columbia River, uh, out in Oregon, in the Pacific Northwest. And that time I was still working, but I was home doing the stay-at-home work thing, and it just wasn't working. But what was working for me was I got to spend time with the Lord. And, and I really appreciate what you talked about. It's not isolations, it's in solitude with the Lord. And, and I really, I listened to Mark's preaching, and I was just like, that is what I need. I need time, not just in isolation. I'm with my wife, and, and I'm going to spend an hour every night in my sauna just praying. And what did that do during that time? So you'd fish during the day and sit during the, in the sauna at night. 
That's a great life, man. <laughs> it was a really good life. I got to tell you, I, I was pulling in 30, 40 pound salmon and uh, just sitting in my sauna praying at night. It was just, it was, I mean, it's God. It's a co God thing. You, you, you're the one guy on earth who defeated COVID, man. You won. You get. Well, I figured that the heat, the COVID couldn't live in that heat anyway. <laughs> Only, only a wrestler and an MMA fighter can handle those kind of sauna sessions for an hour. Tell us a little bit about your fighting career, the transition from, well, Olympic wrestling, a little bit about that, and then transition into MMA. Okay, so uh, like, like I said, my coach Mark Sprague told me, you know, you can, you can achieve anything you want to achieve in this, in this sport. And this is a guy that started really late. I started in high school. Most of the guys start when they're six, seven years old. And I had a lot of catching up to do. That's why I ended up going to junior college before I ended up getting recruited to uh, a Division One school in Nebraska, big time program. But uh, I, I said, "Oh, I want to be. I want to be in the games. I want to represent the United States in the Olympic Games, and uh, I want to come home with a medal for the United States." And that was a pretty uh, big goal. It was a pretty big goal. But somehow I found my way on a team. I mean, I thought I was going to make that team in '92 and '96. I was an alternate on the team. I went to the Olympic Games. And it just drove me more to, to do that. In 97, I, I, I looked at this sport that just started, MMA. Actually, back then, it was called No Holds Bar. There was only like three rows. So you couldn't bite, you couldn't eye gouge, you couldn't kick them in the groin. Uh, so, I mean, this those, was... Those are still good rules. Though I, I still like those rules. <laughs> I like those rules a lot. And uh, <laughs> But... Uh, it was a distraction from my, my goal of, of making the Olympic team and competing in the games. And so I put that on hold and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna pick that up sometime later. And I ended up making a team and going to the Olympic games and, and did win a medal in the, in, in the Olympics. Thank you, thank you. And this was before uh, Zufa, Fertitas, Dana White all owned the company. It was owned by uh, SEG. And Jeff Blatnick was an Olympic champion in 84, cancer survivor since passed. But uh, um, I said, Jeff, uh, he was like the Joe Rogan of that era. I said, can you, can you make a contact for me? He said, absolutely. And I was fighting in December. And, and everyone was like, what, what do you, you just got done wrestling in the Olympics. How would you have time to train? I didn't. I just got out there and fought. And, uh, and I kept fighting my way until eventually I was one of the number one fighters in the world at, at the middleweight division. But I also fought heavyweight because I got an opportunity to go over to Russia and, and fight Fedor Emelianenko, the number one heavyweight in the world. Well, I was the number one middleweight in the world. And, you know, you saw some of it. I was, I was, the, thank you for those clips, whoever edited those, because I, I ended up getting my arm snapped. But uh, um, that, that was kind of my transition. It was just like into the fire, into the fire. I, I mean, I, I had those three fights. I like, okay, I kind of got an idea what, what goes on. Um, and then I started coaching guys and started training other athletes. And I, I've had four athletes out of my gym that I coached all fight in the UFC for world titles as well. Uh, Evan Tanner, Chael Sonnen, Randy Couture, Dan Henderson, all, all fought out of my gym, my training partners, guys I coached and worked with. Um, so I really felt like it was, you know, when I, when I was done competing at 42 years old, 41, I, my last fight was in 2011, uh, and my body just said, you're too slow, man. I, my mind's just going, I, you can do this, and I'm going to move my head, but I'm getting hit with punches, and the, I wasn't slipping them. I decided it was time to, to hang up the gloves, and I went into coaching full-time, and then 
coached a lot of MMA fighters. And then I got the opportunity to coach the United States Olympic team. And I was like, I'm going to take this, this journey. And it was, it was just a blessing to have that opportunity, but it was time to, to move on. There's a season for everything. And right now, I think the, the season for us is the is the pour into these young men that are in our community in Portland, Oregon. I don't know if you guys know what's going on in Portland, but it ain't good. It ain't good, and uh, we got a lot of a lot of kids that that need guidance. They need martial arts. They need mentors. They need father figures and people that are going to pour into them and just tell them they're loved and and that there's a God that loves them and they need to know Jesus. So, like, the season you're in now, you're pretty much fathering. I mean, you're coaching, but you're fathering through coaching. Maybe talk about that. Now that we're a little bit older, you know, you're not just the, the big brother on the mats. Now you're kind of the father who's encouraging. And there's just a crisis of fatherlessness. And there is an epidemic of a lack of masculinity in the culture and good examples and all that is coming against young men is literally to castrate and to crucify them. I mean, there's, there's no one that seems to be for them. Talk about having a father's heart, kind of coming alongside the young guys and why that's so vital for older men to do right now. Yeah, when I, I started coaching uh, right after I got out of high school, I moved back to Oregon. My, I didn't even finish the semester. My wife's like, uh, hey, uh, it's wrestling season over. We're going back to Oregon. Like, let's go. And we got back to Oregon. And, well, you know, our families are messes. Families are messes. And she's like, I don't know why we're here. And I got I got invited to go to, to the Olympic Training Center as an athlete. And so I, I left there, spent a couple of years there, then got, got recruited back to my alma mater, Nebraska, to be one of the coaches for the university, but they were also supporting my athletic career. And so I really got mentored by some wonderful coaches. Mark Cody, who's still one of my dearest friends in the world. He's still a division one coach. Hey, go big red. Thank you. And, uh, and I, I learned how to coach, but my coaching style was like, I'm going to beat you up. I'm going to show you how, how to be tough and, and just physically kind of abuse some of these guys. But then I, and afterwards, you know, I'd grab them. Hey, let me help you. Let me show you what, I, what you can do here. How, here's how you can fix things. Here's how you can improve. Here's how you can reach your goals. And when I got into this new role, it was like, I can't compete with these guys. These are the best guys in the world going to the Olympic Games. They're going to the World Championships. I'm in my late 40s. Uh, I'm not going to be able to get on the mat and beat these guys up. So I, I literally said, you know, I need to coach differently. I need to figure this out. And what it was is exactly what you said. It's with the Father's heart. And, I, and through that prayer time and, and solitude with the Lord, I, I ended up writing an article that's on published on one of the, the wrestling websites, Five Point Move. It's just literally coaching with the Father's heart. And it's just coaching differently it's uh not not beating guys up it's building guys up and uh that's what that's what we do here at real men too we build men up and we don't beat them up you know and and that, that was kind of my coaching style was i'm gonna rough you up i'm gonna i'm gonna make you tougher but uh that doesn't always work sometimes it works it's a really good effective tool to use but it doesn't work with everybody because sometimes it breaks guys and and they don't they don't get built up. And so I just changed the way I coach, the way I lead, and uh, just building young guys up and grabbing these kids that, I mean, they don't have dads or, or they, if the model athlete I wanted was, was two parents intact, grandparents, aunts, uncles, like this whole family unit. And that's, 
And the best, the best athletes do have that. But there's some guys that don't have that, that have overcome that. They don't have a father. They don't have a father figure. And they've found a way to overcome that. But they need somebody to pour into them. And that's when the young men, you, you get in here, and we've got some older guys that are just saints that can pour into these men and just really build them up. And that's, that's kind of what I changed. So uh, I was going to ask you, too. We had a conversation many years ago. You were telling me kind of at that Olympic level, most of the athletes physically are kind of at the same level. And the real difference is the mental. So talk about for a man, especially a young man, developing, cultivating mental toughness, pushing through those, those mental barriers. I mean, it's suffering. It's, it's, you know, but in sport like, like wrestling or mixed martial arts, it's, it's a chosen suffering. You choose to suffer. You know that you're going to suffer, but you, you choose that. And it's how well you suffer is how well you can perform. And it, it, the guys that can endure the most pain, the most, you know, and, and rebound and come back and be able to perform under that pressure. But it, it is, it's all about the, the strength and the mentality, but it's also having that relationship with the Lord because you can't do this on your own. Like going to the Olympic Games, I mean, just getting there, if, if any of you know my story about getting there, it was, uh, I, I went to the United States Supreme Court to, get, to put me on the team because one of my bouts was misjudged. And when I went to the appeals process, I was denied my due rights and my, and my process over and over and over again. And then finally, a, a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled on my behalf and said, just re-wrestle the match. I beat the guy 9-0, got put on the Olympic team, and then got pulled off about three more times. And then finally, the case went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and uh, they were like, go, you're going to Sydney. As I'm still in Sydney, right as, after I got done walking in the opening ceremonies, they were going to re-arbitrate this case in the International Court of Arbitration for Sport. And the judge in, in Chicago, an old cantankerous guy, uh, got woke up because we're on different time zones in Sydney, Australia. He got woke up about four in the morning and said, you know what, you guys win. I have no jurisdiction outside the United States. But if you ever plan on coming back, I will have air marshals waiting to arrest you. So they ended up letting me wrestle anyway. So. So in closing, uh, just be honest with the guys. Had you not had Jesus in your life and journey, what would your life look like today? Oh, my gosh. I, I mean, I, I, I can't imagine because, I mean, I like fighting, and I probably wouldn't have done it inside of a, a, a cage or on the mats in the Olympic Games. I would have probably been doing it out on the streets and getting in a lot of trouble. And, uh, I mean, Definitely, uh, I, and I feel like I'm still a counterculture guy because being a conservative Christian now and well, nowadays, like if you're a heterosexual male that drives a truck and you're reads the Bible, like you're 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 a freak. You're, you're just you're just totally punk rock now. <laughs> so all you guys are punk. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, I, honest, honestly, I just I just I need Jesus. I I need Jesus. I need Jesus because. It helps me be a better husband. It helps me be a better father and a better leader in everything I do in life. But I just love the Lord, and I want to serve Him, and I want to follow. I want to follow the Lord. I want to be filled with His Spirit, and I want to produce good fruit. Amen. Well, thanks for sharing with us. Thank you. Would uh, and thanks for being a friend for a long time. I appreciate you very much. Would you be willing to just pray for the guys for the close? Oh my gosh! Yes.
I've never had anybody pray with a dip. So this is, this is a, this is good. This, I mean, this will be like, this is a very special moment. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. Lord, thank, thank you for this opportunity just to come here and share with these men and just, uh, you know, let them, let them know more about you and, uh, and how much I love you. And, uh, just thank you for, for this opportunity to, to be here and to share with these men. And I just want to pray that these men know you. They all get to know you. Everybody in this room, everybody that's watching us uh, on the Internet, I want them to know who you are. And if you don't know the Lord, I want, I want them to just at least get, get peaked and, and find out who you are. Because once you understand that the Lord is with you, I mean, you can never lose the Lord. I mean, it's just... Thank you so much, Jesus, for my family and for my wife and my children and the blessings that I've been given throughout my life. And I just want to bless these men, and I just want them to be blessed by you, Lord. Thank you. Amen. Amen. You guys, thank Matt for me. Thank you, brother. All right. Um, we're going to reset the stage, but first, we've got a video for you, and you're going to see what's going on globally. It's pretty awesome. And uh, then I got a sermon for you. Good Fight, that's the name of our summer Real Men Bible study. We'll be going verse by verse through 1 Timothy. Uh, you and me up here in the mountains, real informal, casual, 12 weeks looking at an older man named Paul, building up and uh, investing in a younger man named Timothy, teaching him how to be a man of God and fight a good fight. And I'll tell you, in a day when the uh, world has lost its mind and everything's going to hell, uh, a few men need to learn how to fight. I'll see you guys online this summer as we study 1 Timothy, the good fight. I am so grateful for Real Men and uh, the opportunity to be at a table with a bunch of guys that I'm accountable to. I'm grateful for all the things that come with it, from being a leader in my house, side by side with my wife, my children. I just want to thank God for giving me a renewed purpose which is biblically based so that we can inspire future generations of good, ethical, Christian law enforcement officers here in the United States. At a day and age where truth and masculinity, biblical literacy is so rare, Pastor Mark packages it all together. He does such an amazing job displaying the heart of God in culture and society. Men's has been an absolute blessing, and I would encourage all the guys who haven't been here to come. I was a drug and alcohol addicted for over 15 years, and uh, it was the teaching of Mark Driscoll uh, when I got sober that taught me how to be a man, how to be a husband, how to be a father, um, and also how to be a ministry leader. Eu tenho sido encorajado muito pelo ministério da Real Man, tenho sido abençoado demais, temos sido abençoado demais pelo ministério da Real Faith, da Trinity, do pastor Mark, e Deus tem sido um bondoso conosco. Eu tenho pregado em muitas igrejas, viajado todo o nosso país, já tenho algumas viagens para a Europa, até para próprios Estados Unidos, para pregar o evangelho, ensinar homens, e tudo isso eu devo ao ministério do pastor Mark, do Real Man, Real Faith, Welcome to, welcome to the first annual Real Men's Conference, amen? Hey, thank you for joining us. We're honored to have you. We want you to know that you matter. You matter to God, you matter to me, you matter to us, and if you're new, we 
care about you. Can you guys who are part of our core give a warm welcome to all of our guests? You're in the right place with the best men. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna talk about Jesus Christ, amen? We're talking about Jesus Christ and it all starts with Jesus. You wanna fix your life? Start with Jesus. You wanna fix your marriage? Start with Jesus. You wanna heal a relationship with your kids? Start with Jesus. This world needs Jesus Christ. You need Jesus Christ. We need Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Amen. God wanted to change the world and he decided that he would come as a man. This is so wonderful. It means if anything is gonna change in the world, we need to get the men to be like Jesus. And ultimately we are so blessed as men because as we look at Jesus, we know what a real man is, says, thinks, and does. If you wanna know what a man looks like, look to Jesus Christ and you will get the perfect example. So he has, and I'll tell you a little bit about me. Uh, I became a Christian at age 19 in college. I, uh, I was on a walk at a men's retreat. God reminded me of this today. God spoke to me audibly as a 19 year old guy. Said, Mary Grace, we've now been married 30 years. We've got five kids, two married, one engaged. My first two grandkids are on the way. Both sons, both grandsons, okay? So, that means we gotta launch real little men. That's up next. It's gonna be great. And God has only and always been good to me. And when I was 19, he said, Mary Grace, preach the Bible, train men and plant churches. That's what I've been doing since I was 19. You are part of a word that was spoken to me as a 19 year old single new Christian man. The biggest problem in our world today is that people don't know Jesus, but ultimately that men don't know Jesus. If more men knew Jesus, we would have a different world. We would be living in a different culture. We'd be peering into a different future. If you want to win the war, you have to get the men. That's why the attack in the war right now is on masculinity and men. It's on strength and courage and integrity, and it is against the men of God and the word of God. And we are here to say no in Jesus' name. We are Jesus' men. We read Jesus' word. We follow Jesus' example, and we live for Jesus' glory. And if someone doesn't like it, we don't care. That's who we are. We live in the desert, there's plenty of sand to pound. That's, that's where we're at. Now, some of you don't know Jesus and I wanna talk specifically to you. There's lots that is said about Jesus. We're gonna let Jesus speak for himself. He is the most towering figure in the history of the world. There's no one alongside of Jesus. We measure time, BC, before Christ, AD, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. We celebrate his birth at Christmas, his resurrection at Easter. More songs are sung to him, more paintings painted of him, more books written regarding him, more lives devoted to him than anyone who's lived in the history of the world. Ultimately, no one is as big as Jesus. Today, billions of Christians follow him. The church is the biggest movement of any sort or kind in the history of our planet. I wanna to talk to you 
about Jesus Christ. And you need to make the most important decision you will ever make. That is whether you will receive Jesus Christ as your God or you will reject him and then stand before him. And so we're gonna let Jesus tell us who he is. I'm gonna share with you six things that Jesus says. And ultimately, my friend, here's the issue. I love you, it's an honor to have you. But if you're not a Christian, you don't have a problem with me, you have a problem with him. And my job is to tell you about this problem and your job is to receive him as your God to fix this problem. Number one, Jesus said he came down from heaven. Here's how he says it in John 6, 38, 41 and 42. I have come down from heaven. You know what that means? He's God. I have come down from heaven. They began to grumble about him. When people hear what Jesus says, they complain. They start to speak against him. The counterculture and the cancel culture has been at work against Jesus since day one. They began to grumble about him because he said, I came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say I have come down from heaven? Jesus landed on the earth and what he says is I've come down from heaven. You need to know this is an amazing claim. Other religious leaders do not tell us that they came down from heaven. Only God could come down from heaven. What he is saying is that he is not a good man. He is God become a man. Every other religion will tell you, and some of you will wonder, what's the difference between Christianity and other religions? Well, it's very simple. There is God and there is us. There is heaven, there is earth. Either we go up to God or God comes down to us. Every other religion teaches in some form or fashion, we go up to God. You live a good life, you have good works, you do good deeds, you die and pay off your debt to karma and make progress toward heaven. Only Christianity teaches that we don't go up to God, that God comes down to us. Our world needs God. Our world is not going to fix, save or heal itself. We are the problem, not the solution. We need God to come down as the solution and he did as Jesus Christ. In addition, what this means is you don't need to be good. You don't need to try harder. You don't need to get better. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. Number two, Jesus said he's the only God. In John 10, 30 through 33, Jesus answered, I and the father are one. He's saying he's the son of God. Again, they, the critics and the enemies, let me say this, if Christ had critics and enemies, so will we. If they tried to cancel him, they will try and cancel us. If they wanted to crucify him, they will want to crucify us. He says, I and the father are one. And again, they picked up stones to stone him. And if, if you're brand new, this is throwing a rock, not smoking a joint, just so you know. You young guys with your medical marijuana card, it's hard for you to keep these things clear. It's hard for you to keep anything clear, okay? But in that day, if you said you were God and you were not God, guess how they killed you? Everybody throw a rock at you until you bled out and died. That's what they're planning on doing. They picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I've shown you many great miracles, right? I went water skiing without a boat. I took a little boy's Lunchable. I fed a stadium. I rose a guy from the dead. Uh, you know, 
got a resume, did a few things. What's your problem? Uh, he says, for which of these do you stone me? They said, we're not stoning you for any of these, but for blasphemy. That is when someone says they're God. Because you, a mere man, you're not God, you're just a man, claim to be God. You need to know that Jesus is the only founder of any major world religion who declares himself to be God. There is no other religious leader declaring themselves to be God. This means that Jesus is either God or the greatest fraud in the history of the earth. If a few thousand years later, we've opened churches, we're singing songs, we're publishing Bibles, we're hosting events, we have Christian schools and Christian colleges and seminaries to train leaders, and we're sending missionaries around the world. If all of that is based on the lie of a damnable dead man, then Christianity is the scourge of the planet and Jesus is the worst man who has ever walked on the earth. So you need to decide, is he telling the truth or lying? The reason they put Jesus to death was because of his words. His deeds were loved. He would heal the sick. He would bring sight to the blind. He would feed the hungry. He would welcome the outcast. Jesus didn't get in trouble for what he did, but what he said. And what he said was, I am God. The religious leaders, the political leaders conspired together to murder him. They both saw his claim to being God as a threat to their authority. In saying that he was God, he was putting himself above the religious leaders. In saying that he was God, he was putting himself over the political leaders. So they decided that they would destroy him. Jesus died for one reason, he said he was God. The question is, do you believe him? Do you agree with him? Do you trust him? Number three, Jesus said he's perfect, okay? How many of you men would never even pretend to make this claim? And, and how many of you, if you did, your wife would testify, right? And then, I mean, you single guys, here's what you don't know. You're worse than you think. And as soon as there's a witness, it'll be readily available for you as a fact, okay? I, men are bad, right? Everyone's all like, he's a good man. No, no, the only good men are dead men. They stop doing evil. That's the only thing that stops a man. Jesus said that he is perfect. Here's how he says it. It's, it's in public. This is in front of a crowd. In John 8, 46, he asks, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Here's what he's saying. I've lived a perfect life. I've never done anything wrong. Anyone care to disagree? Elijah Buck, it's coming out, super excited. Been working on this for a long time. And uh, this is probably the most controversial, um, culturally relevant, insightful, prophetic, Holy Spirit meets demonic, mind diaper kind of content I've ever prepared. I'll give you the subtitle, it's too long to even remember. It's uh, a study of Elijah, sex, gender, ancient paganism masquerading as progressive Christianity, victims of nothing, woke politics, the transgender, Jezebel spirit that castrates men and the passive Ahab soft woke Christian beta male spirit leading the conga line to Sheol carrying a rainbow flag. If I haven't offended you yet, get the book. I'm going to give it my best shot. Here's where it started. I was getting ready to teach a series from 1st and 2nd Kings on the life of an ancient prophet Elijah and uh, sat down and over the course of, I don't even remember, a day or two, 
I just was praying and verbal processing and seeing things and taking almost three decades of Bible teaching and before it was all said and done, I accidentally wrote a book. I think it's the most incredible thing I've ever written. I was learning things while writing it. The Holy Spirit was involved in a supernatural way that I don't fully understand. My wife Grace kept coming over. We were supposed to be on break. It was after Christmas. She's like, are you all right? I said, yeah, I'm just in a weird zone. A rain Man meets a haunted house, uh, meets demons, meets Holy Spirit, meets Old Testament kind of lane. And uh, we're just gonna give it away. I know nobody's gonna publish it. Um, because uh, you know it's not safe for the whole family. Uh, in fact, uh, don't let your kids read it. They'll be up all night. But it is an insight, and the principle behind the uh, book, it's in conjunction with the sermon series that I'm doing, which thank you for helping get the word out. It's the most popular sermon series I've ever done, is that we have new days, but we have old demons. And that what we're seeing today with uh, corrupt government, uh, Men who are like Ahab, they're passive and cowardly and soft and weak and woke. And women who are like Jezebel, domineering, overbearing, controlling, sexual, manipulative, dangerous and violent, but still say that they're the victims. Uh, we're also seeing in our day transgenderism, castration of men. Jezebel, we are told, was surrounded by her eunuchs. And so I got into a deep dive study and what I was able to do is connect 3,000 years ago with today. And what we're seeing is different people with the same activities and the same beliefs because working behind the scenes are the same demons. So what we're gonna do in the book, we're not gonna just look at the life of Elijah, we're gonna look through it into our present. We're gonna assume that the Bible is not old, that it's eternal and because it's timeless, it's always timely. And what we're going to do is we're gonna peel back the demonic veil on what's really happening in Western culture and the whole prayer and goal is that you would become like Elijah, filled with the Holy Spirit, that you would know how to take a stand and to take the shots and call the shots for the kingdom of God. You'd be able to wisely lead your life and lead your family. And if you're a ministry leader, lead your ministry into the purposes of God. You can find everything at realfaith.com, daily devotions, uh, the sermons, the real men talks, and also the study guide and now the Elijah full book. It's coming in around 60,000 words, or you can text the word FIRE to 99383. That's again, text the word FIRE to 99383. I'm not getting paid for this. I wrote it. I'm proud of it. I'm giving it away. Any gift you want to give goes into Real Faith Ministry, helps me get Bible teaching out. Uh, honestly, I just want to get this message out. I think it's a prophetic word for pathetic days. He goes on to say, um, if I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Now, this issue of sin is significant. This is the word of God. It's the only perfect thing on the earth. This is the book that God wrote through his human servants. This is the only book that when you read it, the author meets with you to help you learn it because it was written by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is for you, but it's not about you. It's for you, but it's not about you. It's about Jesus. And as you open the Bible, you're gonna hear laws or commands. And it's like a father telling his kids, don't do that, do this. Every time we sin, we violate the word of God and what the father has told us. I wanna to talk to you about sin. And we live in a very frustrating world where we talk about institutional sin, not personal sin. We talk about their sin and not our sin. 
and everybody wants to be the victim and nobody will admit that they're also the villain. That's the world we live in. That's the woke joke folk. That's the whole progressive you know, pathology. We're good people, they're bad people. Anything bad in our life is not our fault. It's someone else's fault. Let me say this, everybody's bad except for Jesus. We're all victims of someone's sin and we're all villains who sin against others. Jesus says he alone is without sin. This is an astonishing claim. Let me tell you a little bit about sin according to the Bible. Sin includes your thoughts. How many of you are glad that people can't see your thoughts? How many of you are really glad there's not a monitor on your forehead and that your wife can peer into your thought life, right? God sees your thoughts. How many of us, we've spoken words, I shouldn't have said that. Cursing, lying, fighting, flirting. Sin not only includes our thoughts and our words, but our deeds. What have you done that you shouldn't have done? Who have you touched that you shouldn't have touched? What have you taken that you don't own? And it also includes our motives. We all know as men, there are things that we've done that outwardly look good, but inwardly our motive was bad, right? This happens all the time. You single guys, you have a master's degree in this. The guy was like, he's such a servant. He's horny. He's, that's it. You know, he's always driving toward the same end zone. And it's not a deeper prayer life, you know? And we're nice to people who can benefit us. We're nice to gals who will sleep with us. We're nice to people who will promote us, but we know the motive of our heart. In addition, Sin includes commission and omission. Commission, you weren't supposed to say or do that. Omission, you didn't do what you were supposed to do. Who were you supposed to forgive that you've not forgiven? Who are you supposed to help that you haven't helped? Who are you supposed to give to generously that you haven't given to? What are the nights you were supposed to come home to your family, but instead you were selfish? What are the days that you were supposed to be helping others, but instead you were just serving yourself? So let me say this, the world has many problems and under all the problems is one problem. And until we deal with the root problem, we can't deal with any of the other problems. The human problem is sin. Sin is rebellion against God. It is independence from God. And the result is death because life is only worth living in relationship with God. It says this in Psalm 51, four, against you only Lord have I sinned. We all have sinned, but Jesus says he is without any sin. Now again, these are unprecedented claims in the history of the world. You can't just say, I think Jesus is a good man. No, he says he's the God man. Well, I think he lived a good life. No, he said he lived a perfect life. We either need to accept Jesus for who he says he is or reject him because we disagree with what he proclaims. Number four, Jesus said he can forgive sin. He says this on one occasion to a man. Jesus said, son, notice he's got a father's heart. Son, your what? Your sins are forgiven. Then it goes on. And the critics, again, want to immediately correct and cancel him. Let me say this, every time you tell the truth, someone will oppose you. 
Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. He's saying he's God. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who, who can forgive sins? Only God. If our sin is against God, the only person who can forgive us is God. I hear this all the time from people They're like, I just can't forgive myself. Let me just tell you, that's not your biggest problem. You're not gonna die, stand before a mirror and render a verdict on your life. You're gonna die and stand before Jesus and he will render a verdict for your life. There are really only two kinds of people, forgiven and unforgiven. Those are the only categories. When you die, if you're forgiven, you go to be with Jesus in heaven. If you don't have forgiveness of sin, you will die, be judged by Jesus and spend forever in hell. We're way too caught up in our categories. What, are you Democrat or Republican? Are you, you know, progressive or traditional? You know, are you someone who you know, is rich or poor or black or white or young or old or male or female? And there is a difference. And, and the issue really is this, are you forgiven or unforgiven? That's really the issue. Every other category is secondary. Forgiveness of sin is primary. You and I, we need to be forgiven. And there can be no relationship without forgiveness. For those of you who are married, if you don't forgive your wife and she doesn't forgive you, you don't have a marriage. With your children, if you don't forgive them and they don't forgive you, you don't have a family. With God, if he doesn't forgive you, there's no relationship, there's only punishment. Jesus dealt with the big problem and he will forgive you and help you deal with all the other problems. Jesus on the cross died in our place for our sins. Christians have always enjoyed talking about the cross, not because it was good for Jesus, but because it was good for us. On the cross, the worst thing happened to the best man. Jesus who lived without any sin, only and always told the truth, was crucified and murdered on a Roman cross. The most painful, shameful way to die. He, while hanging, said this in a prayer, Father, forgive them. As Jesus was dying, he was praying for us. He was praying for you. And then Jesus died to answer his own prayer. Sin causes death. We're all gonna die. It's just so ridiculous to me. A few years ago, we shut down the earth and a bunch of false prophets told us that everything would be fine and it wasn't. And everyone was told, if we just shut down the earth, then no one will die. Two things I wanna say. The goal is not to avoid death, but to live life. And number two, you're still gonna die. There are people that are gonna die with four jabs, two masks, gloves on, and they're still gonna die, probably from the four masks, you know? And the worst thing is not to die because you're all gonna die. I mean, death is undefeated, friend. If you die and you're forgiven, 
you enter into the fullness of life. This world then is as close to hell as you'll ever be. And you go through a little hell and then you go to heaven. If you're unforgiven, you die. And then all you experience is punishment and death forever, suffering. This would be as close to heaven as you would be. And all that awaits you is hell. Are you forgiven? That's my question. This is between you and Jesus. You are a sinner. You need Jesus Christ to forgive you. So you need to give Jesus your sin and he will give you his forgiveness. How many men here would testify that you have done this and it's changed everything? Everybody testify? Let me say this too. Uh, Jesus doesn't just save me from hell. Jesus saves me from me. The most powerful force on the earth is a man. The only thing stronger than a man is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And had Jesus not saved me, I would have literally brought hell into my own life. I had faithfully married 30 years, happy to report to a female. Okay. Um, yep, yep, so, okay, a female. Okay, if you're like, oh, that's very binary. Yes, it is, it is. I've been, I've been faithfully married 30 years and I wouldn't have been faithful to my wife but for Jesus. I come from a long line of men who were alcoholics and self-destructive. Were it not been for Jesus, um, I would have self-destructed my life. In addition, I have five kids that I love with my whole heart, three boys and two girls. But I would have been a domineering, overbearing father and they would not feel safe with me or invite me into their life. And now that my grandkids are on the way, they would not trust me to be the kind of person that they would allow alone with their child. Not only does Jesus take you to heaven, Jesus brings heaven to you so you don't make hell out of your life, okay? How many of you men, that's your testimony, that's your story. And, and, and sometimes, you know, you look at a guy, you're like, you're a mess. He's like, imagine me without Jesus. You know, I'd have my underwear on the outside, Charlie Sheen would be blushing and Vegas would never be the same, you know? We're all a work in progress. Number five, Jesus conquers death. Not only does he forgive sin, he conquers death. While he was alive, before he died, Jesus told us that he would die and then rise to forgive sin and defeat death. It says in Mark eight thirty one, Jesus began to teach them that the son of man, that's a title for himself, must suffer many things, be killed, and after how many days rise again? Three. He died on a Friday, he rose on a Sunday. That's why the Christian church tends to meet on Sunday. Let me say, if one man conquered death, you should follow that man. If one man went through death and came back, he's the only one who knows what awaits on the other side. Just let me hit this briefly, reasons to believe in Jesus' resurrection. If Jesus is still dead, then Christianity should not exist. We should close every church, we should burn every Bible, and we should cancel every worship song. 
If he's alive, that changes everything. That means that sin can be forgiven, death can be defeated, and heaven has been opened. Let me explain briefly what the Bible and sources outside of the Bible tell us about the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Number one, he died. He was crucified, which was state-sponsored terror. Uh, to ensure that he was dead, they ran a spear under his rib cage, puncturing his heart sac so that water and blood flowed from his side. Then he was wrapped in upwards of 100 pounds of burial linens and spices. His body was put in a hewn tomb out of rock. It's cold, there's no medical attention. A stone is rolled over it. Soldiers guard it. He's dead, he's dead. In addition, where he was buried was well known. Jesus was a poor man, but when he died, there was a quiet disciple named Joseph of Arimathea who gifted Jesus his private burial plot. Just like the home that you own, it was registered with the state and everyone knew where it was. In addition, <clears throat> his disciples following his resurrection, they were utterly transformed. Before Jesus rose, they were cowards. After he rose, they were courageous. There was a guy named Thomas who was a doubter. He said, I, I don't think Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus showed up, said, Thomas, it's me. Look at my hands, there's the scars. Look at my side, that's where the spear went. And he fell down as a man. And this is what a real man should do, is fall down and worship Jesus. There was another man named Peter, he was a coward. They came to him as they were arresting and preparing to murder Jesus. Don't you know him and aren't you with him? He said, never met him, don't know him. He denied Christ. After Jesus rose from death, Peter became a pastor, wrote two books of the Bible, and then they went to crucify him. They said, all you've got to do is just deny Jesus again like you did. Just deny that he rose from the dead and then we'll let you live. If you don't deny him, we're going to crucify you like we crucified him. Peter said, Jesus rose from death. I saw it with my own eyes. I'm not afraid of death and I'm not worthy to be crucified like Jesus. Please hang me upside down. In addition, Jesus appeared to crowds upwards of 500 at a time. It says this in 1 Corinthians 15, over the course of 40 days, Jesus was in public. He was hugging people, praying for people, having meals with people. This was a public fact. This was a public fact. In addition, Jesus' followers remained loyal to him. If Jesus said he was God and they murdered him and he died and he didn't rise, no one would be loyal to him. There's no reason to follow a liar to your execution. The fact that his followers remain loyal is incredible. In addition, his tomb was not enshrined. Historians tell us that in the days of Jesus, when men who were noteworthy would die, especially religious leaders, they would enshrine their tomb. On the day that Jesus died in that region, there were roughly 50 tombs of holy men that were enshrined. It's still this way today. There's a massive temple where Buddha is buried. There's a massive worship center where Abraham is buried. Where 
Muhammad, the founder of Islam, the false prophet is buried. There is a holy site that people make pilgrimage to every year. When a, a significant man dies, they get a significant burial location. Jesus' tomb was never enshrined. No one has any idea where Jesus was buried. You know why? He's not there. It's like a weekend at a hotel. He's gone. I went to Israel years ago. I'm like, where was Jesus crucified? They're like, we wish we knew. We could charge a lot of money to take people there. But they said, no one knows. It's like Jesus died and then nobody ever went to his grave again. It's because he wasn't there. He was in town having breakfast. That's the truth. Last few, Jesus' followers worshiped him as God and they were Jewish people. You don't just pick a God. If you pick the wrong God, you go to hell. Why would people who'd been worshiping the God of the Bible for generations, hundreds, thousands of years, start worshiping Jesus as the fulfillment of all that was said in the scriptures? In addition, Jesus' own family worshiped him. This includes his mother, Mary, and his two brothers, James and Jude. They went on to be pastors who wrote books of the Bible bearing their name. How many of you, if your brother joined, if your brother started a religion, you would not join, right? You're like, my brother's the devil. I can't join that, you know? If anyone knows you're a sinner, it's your little brother, amen? I mean, you tortured him. You did, you pulled his underwear over his head. You know, you made him drink out of the toilet and the nicknames I can't even say in church. You know, it's just the difference between being a POW and a little brother, minor, you know, just minor. Jesus' brother said he was sinless, he's perfect, he's God. We're gonna preach for him, we're gonna live for him, we're gonna die for him as our God. In addition, Christians stopped worshiping on Saturday as believers had for thousands of years, began worshiping on Sunday. They had to reset the entire Jewish Sabbath. They had to reset their entire work week and businesses. Jesus' enemy, Paul, a guy who murdered Christians, started worshiping Christ. He wrote 13 or 14 of the 27 books of the New Testament. He was the Osama bin Laden. He was the Saddam Hussein of his day. He was a religious jihadist. He was murdering Christians because he hated Christ. And then he met the risen Jesus and he became one of the greatest defenders of the resurrection in the history of the world. I'll say this as well. Jesus' church has stood the test of time. The fact that we're here is a miracle. We're thousands of years from Jesus, but Jesus' church continues to march on. We're hated, we're oppressed. At certain nations, it's illegal to worship Jesus and teach the Bible. Yet nothing can stop the strongest, longest lasting, most diverse and global movement in the history of the world. And that my friends is the church of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and the church started baptizing the new converts. We're gonna baptize some of you today. It was showing Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose for me and I believe in him and he's forgiven me. And his resurrection guarantees my resurrection. I'm not going to die. I'm going to conquer death and be with Jesus forever. And so some of you have not been baptized. We're gonna baptize you today. Some of you are not yet Christians, but you need to become Christians today. 
and we'll have towels and shirts. You can go out to the lobby. We'll let you change in the restroom. We're gonna worship, we're gonna celebrate. For some of you guys who are prodigals, it's time to come home. For some of you who don't yet know Jesus, this is the day of your salvation. And I have good news. My last point and Jesus' final words are these. Jesus is coming to fix everything and bless everyone who believes in him. Our world's a damn mess. Our government's a damn mess. Our culture's a damn mess. Our economy's a damn mess. Because it's all been damned. It's been cursed by God because of sin. And let me tell you this, it's not gonna be like this forever. An end is coming with the second coming of Jesus Christ. All five prophecies I gave you have been fulfilled. Jesus is good for this last one and it could happen at any time. Matthew 25, when the son of man comes in his glory, first time Jesus came, humility, second time glory. First time poor, second time ruling and reigning, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He came the first time to save you. He's coming the second time to set up his kingdom and to rule and reign. When the son of man comes in glory and all the angels are with him, he's got, a, he's got an army that comes to wage war with him, a divine army. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. No more politicians, no more elections, no more candidates, and no more recounts. One Lord, one throne forever and ever. Before him will be gathered all the nations. Over all the nations is God and the kingdom of God. And he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and there, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Friends, here's what I'm telling you. The reason that Jesus hasn't returned yet is because he hasn't saved everyone that he intends to save. As soon as Jesus saves, rescues, forgives, converts everyone that he has chosen, then he will return. There is a day coming when you cannot receive Jesus. There is a day coming where Jesus will return. You will rise from your grave. You will stand before him. And if you are not forgiven, you, my friend, are going to hell. Hell is real. Forever is real. Torment is real. The bit of suffering we have in this world is just a reminder that if we don't receive Jesus, there is worse suffering coming. I love you men with all my heart. I'm here every week doing everything I can to reach every man that I possibly can. But you men need to know you're being given an invitation and an opportunity today to meet Jesus, to know Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to belong to Jesus, to follow Jesus, to serve Jesus, to die and stand before Jesus. Men, the most important decision you will make is the decision you make about Jesus. That one decision changes your life and determines your eternal life. My job is to be clear. Your job is to make a decision. For those of you who are prodigals, it's time to come home. Stop 
Stop abusing the grace of God. Stop being an idiot. Stop putting your hands on some chick that ain't your wife. You were made for more. You're not an animal. You're an image bearer and a son of God. So act like your father. Lastly, for those of you guys who have never crossed that threshold of decision, you've learned about Jesus, you've admired Jesus, you've considered Jesus, you're interested in Jesus. It's time to receive Jesus as the forgiver of your sin, the saver of your soul, okay? You need to make that decision. If you're ready to make that decision and or go public with your faith through baptism, I feel like everybody else is coming out of the closet. So should the men of God. Go to the back. If you wanna get saved, give your life to Jesus and or be baptized. I'm gonna pray for you. We'll share a little bit of good information with you. And then we're gonna throw a party. We're gonna sing and we're gonna see God save some men. Amen? Yeah. All right, let me pray. Father, thanks for an opportunity to preach your word. Holy Spirit, please fall on these men. Please open their hearts and their minds and their souls to receive Jesus. Please give them a personal conviction of sin. Jesus, we confess that sin is the problem under all the other problems. And Jesus, you alone can deal with our sin problem. It doesn't matter how many wars we wage, how many dollars we spend, how many elections we hold. Until people are filled with the Spirit and surrendered to Jesus, it's just hell on earth. And God, I pray right now that prodigals would come home and that the lost would be found in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys.